Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, Daniel chapter 9, continued. I think if there is such a thing as a spiritual Rubik's Cube, it has to be the prophecy of the 70 weeks is contained in the final verses of Daniel chapter 9. These verses are difficult. The great Hebrew sages have never come to a consensus on their meaning. And over the centuries, different church authorities have attempted various explanations. And yet, to hear some speak, the matter settled. The 70 weeks isn't controversial any longer. It's not mysterious. And we have a clear answer and we have a firm doctrine to go by. Now, we tend to find that these clear answers usually come from popular prophecy teachers and firm doctrines come from various denominational religious authorities because the near universal church practice of creating a systematic theology demands that there can only be one possible answer to almost every possible scriptural or spiritual question that we can ask. And in the realm of systematic theology, what we're studying in Daniel chapter 9 about the 70 weeks usually falls within the systematic theology category called eschatology, which simply means it's the study of the future, particularly as regards the end times. But it might surprise you to learn that because different Bible scholars and different Christian denominations have such a wide-ranging view on the 70 weeks prophecy, some don't view it as belonging in the eschatology, the end times category of systematic theology. That's because their interpretation of the 70 weeks leads them to believe that everything it portends has already happened. That is, all of the 70 weeks of Daniel is in the past. And therefore, it's not about our time, it's not about the end times, it's not about the future. Now, many lessons ago, we discussed how there are three primary mainstream Christian worldviews about the end times, and what they amount to are essentially different interpretations of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy and each of them has been given a label their amillennialism, postmillennialism and premillennialism try saying that fast three times you can go back to earlier lessons for a greater understanding of these if you're interested but within each of these three categories there are substantial variations and disagreements There's also many other lesser known and somewhat obscure views on this subject. And whether mainstream or obscure, each usually has points of scholarly merit. But each is also invariably skewed by loyalty to some predetermined doctrinal agenda. 
Some of the viewpoints are honestly nothing less than secular humanist views that are attempting to discredit the book of Daniel or the whole Bible in general. And as we study Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks, what might be the most difficult thing for you is to deal with your previous church or synagogue experience and teachings on end times issues. The most prevalent view in our day, I think, almost considered gospel, and what could loosely be called the evangelical or the fundamentalist church, generally falls in line with the so-called pre-millennial line of thought. And part of the reason for that is because of highly popularized prophecy teachings that have come from two main sources, Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey. In fact, it catches modern evangelical believers by surprise when they discover that the expectation of a seven-year tribulation period followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ is actually the minority viewpoint among worldwide Christianity. By no means do I want you to think I'm discrediting LaHaye or Lindsay and what they teach. But the important point I need for you to understand is neither come from a background as being Bible scholars or Bible teachers. Their backgrounds are as speakers and writers. Their fame has come about as novelists and as prophecy teachers. They've taken many elements of prophecy, they've woven them together into a system of thinking about the end times, much of it coming from their own interpretation and their opinions. But make no mistake, they could turn out to be right about some of it, maybe much of it. However, the dramatic parts of their teachings that have awed their readers and, and made them famous are the parts that are based on doctrine and speculation. Anything that is as equally probable to be true from a scriptural standpoint, and so it's competitive against their conclusions, that's tended to be pushed aside and disregarded. Therefore, the reason I'm telling you all this is I want to remind you we're doing a Bible study of Daniel. We're not going to be even studying Revelation, and we're not doing a prophecy study. So I'm sorry to say that the issue of the 70 weeks is very complicated. We will go by what the scriptures say, as opposed to adding too much speculation in an attempt to come to some firm and conclusive decisions about exactly what those words mean for the future. And to some extent, we're going to stay within Daniel chapter 9 and not venture to the later chapters in Daniel that indeed add to our understanding. Now, we'll put all that together when we arrive at those chapters. The reality is that the book of Revelation does give us some solid information that helps to eliminate, in some cases, to validate some of the several possible interpretations of Daniel 9. And the passing of history also confirms or discards other possible interpretations. Now, all of that said, I will tell you what I think, what I think the preponderance of evidence and the passing of history seems to indicate. 
with the understanding that if Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks is unfulfilled prophecy, then by definition we have to be careful about how we handle it. We have to be humble enough to at times say, I don't know about many aspects of it. Now, believe me, I'm quite aware that it's human nature to dislike uncertainty. And it's no different in the church. We want our doctrines pretty easy to remember. Nothing we have to work very hard to defend. We kind of like it in a soundbite format. But for me to give you certainty where none actually exists, that's not in any of our best interests as earnest seekers of God's truth. What's always important, and I hope you hear this, what's always most important for me to communicate to you concerning unfulfilled prophecy is a range of likely outcomes. This is because my deepest concern for you and for all the body of Christ is that when these biblically prophesied things start to come about, we have enough information to recognize them for what they are and not miss them because the actual fulfillment didn't fit a rigid, predetermined mindset that's been taught to us. It happens and we say, nah, that can't be it. See, my concern arises not from from a hypothetical, but from what actually happened to the Jewish people almost 2,000 years ago when they had their heads filled with all sorts of speculations and teachings by their religious authorities. They had their minds made up concerning the nature and the works and the identification of their hope for Messiah. But because people were trusting in their religious authorities and in their doctrines, and they turned out to be so wrong, the bulk of Jewish society wouldn't accept the reality when their Messiah, Yeshua, did arrive. The cost of that folly has been incalculable. And let me tell you, I have no intention of repeating a similar circumstance. So what this means for you, what this means for all of us, is that we're going to have to learn to be less certain about how all these prophecies come about. And at the same time, be more knowledgeable about what the scriptures say than what novelists tell us, no matter how many millions of their books may have been sold. Well over a decade ago, a well-known, a popular pastor and I were talking in, in private. And he confidently told me that in his opinion, anybody who doesn't adhere to the pre-millennial viewpoint shouldn't call themselves a Christian. He was quite serious about it. And this is how seriously these matters are taken within some denominations and within many pastors and believers' minds and so how dangerous it can be to hold such scripturally unsubstantiated views as unassailable 
So today and to next and next week, we're going to be navigating a minefield, albeit a fascinating minefield. And it's one we need to walk through, not walk around it, because it has an enormous effect on our present and our future. So with all that, let's read, or actually reread, the last few verses of Daniel chapter 9. Turn to Daniel chapter 9, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, is page 1112, page 1112. We're going to start at verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my own sin and the sin of my people Israel, and pleading before Adonai my God for the, ho- uh, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice, and he explained things to me. He said, I've come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given. And I've come to say what it is, because you are greatly loved. Therefore, look into this answer and understand this vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving iniquity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. Know, therefore, and discern that seven weeks will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks and open spaces and moats, with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. And then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now first, for the sake of clarity, understand that while Daniel's prayer was mainly about inquiring if the 70 year exile of he and his fellow Jews to Babylon was perhaps nearly over, this prophecy of the 70 weeks had nothing directly to do with that exile. So the 70 year exile and the prophecy of the 70 weeks are dealing with two entirely different things. They both contain the number 70 and that's about where the similarity ends. So while Daniel was still in the midst of his prayer to the Lord, a contrite prayer, a a petition for mercy, for, for an end to Judah's exile in Babylon, the angel Gabriel arrives unexpectedly. This is the same spiritual being that we read about and heard of in chapter 8, verse 15, and we can know that this is the case because here in chapter 9, verse 21, Daniel says, Gabriel's the one whom I had seen in the, vi- in the vision at the beginning. 
Gabriel says he came to Daniel for two purposes. First, to tell Daniel that he was greatly loved. And so, his prayers were heard on high and now, Gabriel brings God's answer. And then second, he's going to explain to Daniel what is coming And it's going to be done in the context of the prophecy of the 70 weeks that he's about to tell Daniel. Now that's the easy and straightforward part of this passage. Now, I find it ironic that Gabriel tells Daniel that what he is about to say is in order to clear up matters in Daniel's mind. Well, if Daniel actually understood that 70-week prophecy, he went to his grave with that clear understanding, and he certainly didn't bother to tell us. Yet, the first purpose of Gabriel was to bring a message, a message that Daniel's prayer was heard and God had already formulated an answer. I want you to think about that for a moment. I believe that it's our knee-jerk reaction that when we pray, some amount of time will necessarily pass before God's answer becomes apparent. He's kind of got to think about it, mull this over for a little while. Maybe even for a long time. Yet here, Daniel hasn't even finished his prayer when God's oracle arrives to answer his prayer. Now, I want to tell you the story of a recent event that is a fine example of this, and I I hope it it gives you hope. As you well know, Moran Rosenblatt of Hope for Israel was visiting with us. It was time for him to return home to Jerusalem. And his schedule was tight, it always is. And we saw him off for the airport, and a few hours later... I got a call from him. He's at the ticket counter, the ticket desk at a busy northeastern airport, and his flight has been canceled due to mechanical problems. Now the challenging of all this was less one of inconvenience and more, you see, it was that an Israel tour that Moran was to lead was due to arrive at Tel Aviv at the same time Moran was scheduled to arrive. The airline that he was scheduled to go on had no more flights till the next day. So with little choice, he had to try to quickly book on another airline. The problem was that the airline that he had been scheduled to go on wasn't very cooperative. And he was pretty much on his own to solve this problem. Further, for those who fly very much know when you just walk up to the ticket counter hat in hand an hour or so before an international flight and you want a one-way ticket that price is exorbitant he called me because the choice was to pay the several thousands of dollars and hope for some future reimbursement by the original airline, pretty unlikely proposition, 
were to spend the night in a hotel they'd provide and take the next flight that the original airline had offered and not be with his tour on their first day in Israel. What a dilemma. Well, after discussing it on the phone with him, as a minister, it just didn't seem right to spend so much ministry money for this flight with so little chance of ever being reimbursed for it. So over the phone, we prayed. We prayed that God would intervene, that Moran would find favor, and, and whatever the outcome was, he'd, just, he'd have peace about it. Well, 15 minutes later, Moran called me back to say that moments after we hung up, he was paged, and that the new airline said the old airline called and said they'd pay for everything. Moran was put on his new flight, headed home for Israel on time to meet up with his tour. The point is this. It was in the midst of our prayer that God was already answering it. Now this is something that while we can't count on it as to how God works every time, often He does. So at times when there seems to be no solution, hope can still abound. Because we have a God who loves us and He cares and He does respond. I think we could properly sum up the prophecy of the 70 weeks by saying that it's all about the future development of the kingdom of God. However, understand that future only means future to Daniel at the moment that this oracle was given to him. Now, just how future, well that's essentially what all the various world views about how to interpret this prophecy, well that's what they're attempting to determine and that's why they differ so much. I can't do any better than to paraphrase Dr. Keel in his commentary on Daniel that was written in the mid-1800s. And you know one reason I love commentaries that are at least a hundred years old are because the secular and the religious politics about the state of Israel are nowhere present to skew the author's comments. Because Israel didn't exist then and there weren't any signs that it ever would. Well, Dr. Keel sums up these three main theological worldviews of the 70 weeks without labeling them. First, he says, on the first one, most of the early church fathers, most of the ancient Christian interpreters, right on up to the 16th century, believed that the prophecy of the 70 weeks was entirely about the advent, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And so generally, it ended with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Thus, the 70 weeks terminates about 70 AD, about 1900 years ago. So there is no future aspect to it whatsoever. The second worldview... Interpreters in Dr. Keel's day, starting about the Enlightenment era, 1700 A.D. onward, and now almost universally in modern times where liberalism has taken over, says that this entire passage, as well as most of the book of Daniel, is code talk. 
and is actually speaking, without saying so, about the times of the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes, around 165 B.C. Thus, the 70 weeks of Daniel terminates more than 100 years before Christ is even born. In the third worldview, he says that some of the early church fathers and several theologians, by the way, in Dr. Keel's day, and the modern evangelical and conservative prophecy teachers of our day, that they have interpreted Daniel's 70 weeks as prophetic of the end times, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and so at least part of the prophecy is yet future to us. In other words, the termination of the 70 weeks hasn't happened yet. It's ahead of us. Now just how far ahead of us, we don't know. Now notice what all this means. It means we have a wide range of interpretations of Daniel by credible and brilliant theologians. These interpretations range from including that the 70 we- from concluding rather that the 70 weeks was fulfilled by the 160s BC to them being fulfilled in 70 AD to the 70 weeks not yet being fulfilled. Now that's quite a range. And the many scholars who have these different viewpoints lived in various eras. They were both secular and religious. Some were conservative. Some were liberal. This means we can't so easily determine who is right and who is wrong based only on who they were and what their backgrounds were. Now let's look at the meaning of the 70 weeks from a whole other aspect. Does the 70 weeks literally mean weeks? Might it mean years? Might it mean weeks of years? Or might it be nothing more than a symbolic number that doesn't represent any definite period of time at all? Now, as you can imagine, various Bible scholars have taken different viewpoints on this. However, a couple of these, I think, can be eliminated rather easily for no other reason than the hindsight of history itself shows that it can't be correct. First of all, the 70 weeks as meaning a series of 70 seven-day weeks for a total of 490 days that can't work if for no other reason than because in Daniel's time Jerusalem, which is said has to be destroyed were already laying in ruins so for it to be destroyed again meant it first had to be rebuilt well all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Jerusalem back together again in 490 days and we have an account of the rebuilding of Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to study here or so. And it took a lot longer than 490 days. So we can outright dismiss that as a possibility. It's not speaking of 70 literal weeks to 490 days. Second, The 70 weeks as meaning 70 years, interpreting a week to essentially mean a solar year. 
That didn't work very well either. Because although Jerusalem and the temple would be rebuilt, it was going to be hundreds of years before they were again destroyed. So, the idea that it's, exa- that it's 70 years, that has to be ruled out. didn't happen that way. The third choice is that it means 70 weeks of years. What a strange term. 70 weeks of years. Now, this is more viable as 490 years allows a lot to happen. But how can we legitimately just convert the term weeks to years? See, the Hebrew word that is typically translated into English as weeks is Shabwa. And Shabwa literally means sevens. Shabwa is a is used in a number of of biblical contexts and it could indicate at times what we think of today as a seven day week. It could at times indicate any group of seven things. Or it could simply be a multiply a multiplier. In other words, you take something and multiply it by sevens. Hence the name, Shabua, sevens. So, by all accounts, we can't take the term week, Shabua, to be a seven-day calendar week as is common in modern times. So now that leaves us just two options. Either the term is indicating a group of seven things, whatever that thing might be, or it's a multiplier. Multiplier by the numeral seven. Therefore, when we hear some interpreters say that this is speaking of 70 weeks of years, it's another way of saying 77s, or as we would say today, 70 times 7. Got that? 70 times 7, 77s. Now, as to whether this is speaking of years, well, that's speculation. Nothing specifically says that it's referring to years. Now, I readily admit, it does seem logical that if if this is indeed speaking of a defined period of time, a year certainly seems the most likely. And as we're soon going to see, years, 490 of them, seems to work well, at least within some aspects of this prophecy. But now that leads us to the fourth option. That the 70 sevens or 70 weeks of years is nothing but an inter, rather an indeterminate unspecified period of time because the numbers are meant only as symbolic. In fact, our Dr. Keel, among others of the finest conservative Bible scholars, takes that viewpoint. I used to just dismiss this out of hand as nonsense. But then I remembered that indeed there was something used very similarly in the Bible that we need to look at and see if there's a parallel or a pattern. I want you to listen to a familiar passage from the New Testament. In Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, it says this, Then Kepha, Peter, came up to him, Yeshua, and said to him, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? 
as many as seven times, you know what's coming. Oh no, not seven times, said Yeshua. Seventy times seven. Hmm. Oh boy. Here we have Yeshua saying to forgive 70 times 7. 70 sevens. Or in the language of Daniel, 70 sevens of weeks of forgiving in this case. Now did Yeshua mean that we are to forgive up to and including exactly 490 times, but upon that 491st time, we're no longer obligated by God to forgive anybody? No, you don't think that. I don't think that. And I don't know any Bible teacher that has taught this 70 times 7 in this New Testament passage is anything but a symbolic number. So, is it possible to accept that Daniel's 77s, 490 years, is, as Dr. Keel claims, just symbolic? Now, allow me to detour just a moment as well. I've made the claim, and I stand firm in it, that the New Testament Gospels' sayings about Yeshua have Him constantly referring to Himself as the Son of Man. I don't think I'll get any argument about that here. And this is precisely Yeshua making the claim that He is Daniel chapter 7's Son of Man. Then in Matthew 24, we even read this. 24 verses 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken about through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand this allusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. So here we have Yeshua quoting Daniel by name. We don't have to speculate at Yeshua's knowledge and acceptance of Daniel as true, valid, and God-breathed. And Christ is quoting Daniel, telling the Jewish people to believe it, and then what they should do when Daniel's prophecy comes about. Yeshua was a big fan of Daniel. And history and the New Testament Gospels And the book of Revelation proves that the book of Daniel was for Jesus' day the equivalent of the book of Revelation for modern day Christians. Both were seen, are seen, as books about the latter days. Even the Jews who didn't regularly study the scriptures and were the least interested in such matters had some knowledge of Daniel. So whether Yeshua was speaking to the elite and the educated or to the poor and the barely educated, he used a Daniel theme throughout his earth's ministry when he was referring to end times issues. And clearly he identified himself over and over as Daniel's son of man who is given a seat of authority next to the Ancient of Days, God Almighty. So, consider this. The use of the phrase 70 times 7 is used twice in the entire Bible. Twice. 
in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24, and then later by Christ, who constantly identified himself by using Daniel's prophecies and his terminology. Christ didn't just pluck that number, 70 times 7, 490 out of the air. He quoted Daniel. And in the case of Matthew 24.15, it almost certainly was not a precise number, but rather symbolic using multiples of the divine, ideal divine number 7. So, is that what we have in Daniel 9.24 and the 70 weeks, the 70 weeks of years, and thus as Dr. Keel and others advocate, that the 490 years is merely symbolic and it's not meant as a precise number at all. I'm going to save you the trouble. I'm going to tell you that I do not think it is symbolic. I don't think it is. And I'm going to show you why soon enough. But on the other hand, 490 as a symbolic number cannot and should not be dismissed as impossible because there's just too good of a biblical case in its favor. And I just finished giving you a pretty good example. So, here is one possibility for the meaning of the 70 weeks of years, that it's only symbolic. And we have to put that within our range of possibilities, even if we might consider it less likely than other possibilities. And the other possibility is that the 490 years is 490 real years. And it's absolute, and it's meant to be a precise period of time. See, there's good biblical arguments for both possibilities. Well, if we are to follow the flow of this passage, the way it's written, which is what I generally prefer to do, we now have to adjust our course for the time being and study the goals that consist of six things that are to be accomplished during this period of 77s of time. This 490 years, apparently. Verse 24 says... Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city for putting an end to the transgression, for, make, for, make, for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving iniquity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting seal on vision and profit, for anointing the specially holy place. Six. So the goals listed, at least using the complete Jewish Bible, English translation, are putting an end to transgression, making an end of sin, forgiving inequity, bringing in everlasting justice, setting the seal on vision and profit, anointing the specially holy place. Now, if you carefully consider what I just said, what this is saying, it's really not all that straightforward. I mean, what does it mean, put an end to transgression? What does it mean to set a seal on vision and profit, from even from making an end of sin. What does that mean? See, part of the problem is that the Hebrew wording of verse 24 is quite difficult. And there are some serious ambiguities that arise. And as a result, different English words are used in different Bible versions to express each of these six goals. And they can have substantially different meanings and effects as a result. Now I want to stress that this is a critical passage. 
and it is important to the understanding of the 70 weeks prophecy to try to get at what the goals that take place during this time mean. Because essentially, the idea is that God has six goals He wants to accomplish and it is the purpose of these 490 years if that's what the 70 times 7 means to bring all these goals to fruition. It seems that the bottom line is that the accomplishment of these six goals are as mile markers along a journey that when it's finally completed, we arrive at redemption. Now first, let's go to what is probably the biggest problem in verse 24 for so much of institutional Christianity. That part of it that's adopted some form or another of replacement theology. Now that's... That is that... The doctrine, this replacement theology doctrine, this is a doctrine that all prophecies about a future kingdom of God and about all the blessings that come with redemption are meant for God's church, generally meaning the Gentile church. And there's little else the modern church seems to focus on today than first getting saved in Christ and then thinking about the end times. Everything else in between seems secondary. And so the sense among Christians today is that the end times is all about the church. And so what follows is that Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks, Armageddon, the new temple, and everything else, it's all about the church. Problem is, that doesn't match scripture. Notice, I want you to look carefully, open your Bibles and look at it. Look at verse 24. Notice in verse 24 to whom it is that the 70 weeks is decreed for. Who's it for? Your people and your holy city. Now since Gabriel is speaking to who? Daniel. Who else are your people than the Jews, than Israel. What else is your, Daniel's, holy city than Jerusalem? You tell me. I want to say that again. Think about this. The subject people and subject place of the 70 weeks are plainly called out as Daniel's people, the Jews, and Jewish Jerusalem, not the church. Now, listen to me. This is not to say that members of the Gentile church don't have a role in this. Since as St. Paul points out in Romans 11, the Lord has shown us great mercy in that by faith in Christ, Gentile believers may be grafted into the rich root of Israel, using that famous olive tree metaphor to represent Israel. But the point is... And this one bothers people a lot. Gentiles ride the coattails of the Jews, not the other way around. 
and it is that most certainly the church was going to benefit. We are going to benefit from the six listed goals of the 70 weeks. We are not beggars. We are not second class citizens or orphans in the kingdom of God. However, a plain, straightforward reading is that it is the real, physical, tangible Israel that is the focus and the subject of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. It's right there in black and white. Gentile believers have become part of Israel only in the intangible spiritual sense. Not in the flesh. Certainly not as Israel's replacement. Now it's hard to sufficiently emphasize just what that means for modern believers. So rather than beat around the bush, I'm just going to say it plainly. Fellowship, church, at least the Gentile portion, fellow Gentile believers, we're only secondary players in this prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. Further, if a Christian sees no importance or relevance in Israel or in the Jewish people in our lives and our faith journey, I have no idea why he or she would even give a wit about what happens during these 70 weeks of Daniel's since Christians are nowhere mentioned. See, here I strongly believe we have one of the main reasons for the emergence and growth of the Hebrew Roots movement in modern times. This movement seems to be the result of an outpouring of God's Spirit in the latter days to set some things in their rightful order before Messiah arrives. And it's built around a long overdue admission by Christians that it is Israel that is the focus of God's plan of redemption and not the Gentile-based church. Now I realize that might offend, it might even hurt some feelings, but I'm going to tell you something, this is what occurs naturally when we take that courageous step of studying God's Word, believing it for what it says, instead of accepting long-cherished man-made doctrines that turns the Scriptures on its head. Bible scholars from all schools of theology have noticed that these six goals for the 70 weeks can be grouped into two groups of three. The first three goals, ending transgression, ending sin, forgiving iniquity, regard negative things. Transgressions, sin, iniquity. The second three goals bringing in everlasting justice, setting the seal on vision and profit, anointing the specially holy place, are about accomplishing positive things. Justice, prophecy, the holy place. However, most semblance of agreement pretty much ends there. For instance, some scholars say that this first goal is not about putting an end to transgressions, but rather it is restraining transgressions. Two different meanings. And that the second goal that our complete Jewish Bible says is ending sin 
is rather sealing up sin. Again, different meanings. Goals 3, 4, and 5, forgiving iniquity, bringing in everlasting justice, and setting the seal on vision and profit, that's generally agreed upon. and We don't have any need to get into the minutiae of some of these academic debates because they just carry things way too far. However, that sixth goal, the anointing, at least in the complete Jewish Bible, says the anointing of the especially holy place, oh, that brings wide disagreement. And for very good reason. And we're going to discuss that next week. (laughs) 